Now, that's what I'm going to say, because I think these good people have got some questions for you. So kind of bright up here, so kind of wave your hand about, and there's a roving mic, I hope. Who's got the roving mic? By the way, I forgot to tell you that if a fire happens, you've got to go out the fire exits and, and gather by the statue of Bertrand Russell. But I've said it now. So who would like to ask Ben a question? You gather by the statue of Bertrand Russell and pray for salvation. That's what you've got to do. Someone's got a hand up at the back, I think. And someone's giving you a roving mic. Can you just uh, say your name? It would just be Norman. Nice. Norman. Norman. How did, how did that uh, recent Ebola... Uh, drug get tested so quickly? What was the method there? Um, I'm not sure which you mean, but um, I mean, the reality is that we've actually been quite slack about running randomised trials of best Ebola treatment regimes. Um, and there are various people around who are trying to, to fix that, but um, I think we should be doing cluster randomised trials out in countries that have Ebola on the best way to manage um, Ebola and drugs are one thing. Like I mean, I, I, think, I assume you just mean safety testing, and that's fairly trivial and straightforward. Tell them what a cluster randomised trial is. So a cluster randomised trial is um, basically if you've got a big medical treatment centre in an area with lots of people dying of Ebola, and you say you're going to have treatment A and you're going to have treatment B, but it's okay because we don't know which is best. Then you probably have a riot of people who, if they touch you, will kill you. So you don't want to do that. So what you do instead is you um, run a trial where you randomise whole centres to different treatment models. Now, I didn't mean to be inappropriately facetious there, but um, in practical terms, it's also much more straightforward, especially in the developing world context, to do what are called cluster randomised trials. And by cluster, I, it means um, the cluster of people around that uh, treatment centre. So they're administratively easier, but you need larger numbers of patients in order to detect a statistically significant benefit because whole groups of them are being um, randomised to one treatment or another. Uh, and I'm not convinced that we've been ambitious enough about doing that um, for, for Ebola, although obviously there are massive challenges around doing randomised trials in developing countries. Interestingly, though, um, so, there's, um, so in there, there's a chapter on... The, there's the the thing I did for Gove, or the public-facing half of what I did for Gove, about, like, woo, hey, yeah, let's do randomised trials on social policy questions. And there's also a, um, a Cabinet Office paper that I co-authored called Test, Learn, Adapt, about how to do more randomised trials in government policy, which is kind of fun, because it's like the Janet and John sort of ladybird book of randomised trials in public policy. And what's interesting about that is that we are weirdly bad at doing randomised trials in the UK on things like education, policing, that kind of stuff. But that's quite idiosyncratic to us. In America, they do them much, much more freely. In the developed world, they're also done very, very frequently. So in the developed world, you see um, trials done on, you know, what's the best way of offering um, uh, microfinance schemes? Is it better to have people jointly and severally liable in a village or individually liable? What's the impact of different interest rates? What's the impact of um, offering people insurance against bad crops one year or another? Is that cost effective? And people have been really, really, really good at doing randomised trials in those settings. And it's really interesting, I think, to speculate on why. Because I think Ebola is actually a bit of a misnomer of us failing to do randomised trials on which treatment option works best. Um, and I think the answer is... Oh, sorry, I should shut up and let people ask questions. But, uh, no, it's uh, all right, I'm chatting. You I, keep talking. I think the answer is that trials tend to happen wherever there are people who uh, know about how to do trials and are into the idea. And so 
You see that in the UK. It's very rare to find randomised trials of education in education. So very rare to find trials, good big trials of what's the best way of teaching reading, um, or what's the best way of uh, reducing absenteeism, or what's the best way of controlling challenging behaviour, or whatever. Now. Where you do find trials, it's when they're done by interlopers, medics, who've gone into school settings. So you do find randomised trials, for example, not of what's the best way to teach reading or maths or this particular idea in science. You do find randomised trials of what's the best way of preventing teenage pregnancies with diff comparing different sex education interventions. And that's just because paediatricians are involved and they're doctors and they know about randomised trials. Now, I think the same is true in developing world context. There's just been a small number of people who are really good at getting them going. Um, and randomised trials aren't like the only way to find out about this stuff, obviously. Um, but it's just interesting that there is huge widespread, and to go back to the big map of statins, unwarranted variation mm. in the care that is doing a randomised trial to find out what works best. And that was about Ebola. There's another question here. Okay, you misunderstood my that. chair of the, the Polonex. I should have booed. Um, I'm on your side about the Polonex. One of the problems it reveals is that science moves fast, but philosophy moves slowly. How are you going to persuade philosophers your idea about... Um, randomised trials is a good one. I work in education, and it's not just because paediatricians know how to do trials that we can't do trials in education. It's because every educationist, even more than every medic, has to rely on his or her own judgement. And um, that's a very big barrier to get past. And then if you get past that, you've got the ethics committee behind, the, behind it tripping you up. So what, how are we going to get philosophers involved into this question and... Now, since they get paid to sit on ethics committees, pay them to do something useful. So, um, on the issue of whether it's okay to do randomised trials in education, uh, just, there's just a chapter in the book. It's too long, I, and I've been forced to give a short answer. Um, on the question of what do you do about philosophers on ethics committees stopping you doing something sensible, I think... Um, so, firstly, we've done quite a lot. I mean, I've sort of been doing quite a lot of what's basically kind of behind-the-scenes lobbying like, you know when I disappear and I don't tweet about my poo? That's usually because I'm in a meeting and it would be socially inappropriate to tweet about my poo. Um, so uh, I managed to get Oliver Letwin engaged on the question of inappropriate red tape around randomised trials. And he's convened a bunch of meetings in number nine Downing Street where he's kind of held the feet to the fire of people like MHRA and HRA. Um, and a lot of it is not about philosophers and black polonics, it's about silly administrative barriers to getting things done. It's about, you know, to, so for a while you had to get ethics approval in every single place that you were doing a trial, and then the Health Research Authority or their predecessors set up this thing where they go, oh, you can get unified approval across the whole country, and everybody stops and awards themselves a point and goes, okay, so we fixed that problem then, but you still have to get separate approval from every NHS institution in which you're running your trial. So there's still like 140 different approvals to run your trial, and crazy stuff like that isn't about philosophers and ethicists, it's just about um, bad admin. Um, but there are still ethicists around who do object to doing randomised trials embedded in routine clinical care and think that treatment, even if it is exactly the kind of treatment that you were going to get anyway, in the context of a randomised trial, suddenly is exceptional and has to be treated with kid gloves in some peculiar odd way. The challenge to them is not a philosophical one, it's one of evidence. I think 
that anybody, and actually it's very hard to find anybody who will argue against what I'm proposing, but if you can find anyone, I would enjoy it very greatly. Um, I think anyone who is arguing in favour of the status quo, who is arguing against the kind of um, uh, proportionate, easy, straightforward, quick randomization that I want to see for low-risk comparisons, anyone who's arguing against that should provide evidence that the tremendous log jams that they're putting, the huge burden of unnecessary suffering and death that they are creating, is for a good reason. I think people who are stopping us from doing these trials need to provide evidence showing that they are preventing harm, that if they weren't doing this, that the death tally would be greater than that which I can very, very squarely lay at their door. So I, I don't think it's a matter of philosophy. I think it's a matter of evidence. I think ethics committees and the people who devise their guidelines should be obliged to produce evidence that a seven-page long consent form results in more information being retained by the patient than a one-paragraph consent form, for example. Someone's got a hand up here. Can Get, get the microphone so people can't, can't hear you. It's coming. It's coming. Okay. I can hear you, but the people at the back can't. Okay. Tell us your name. My name's Andy. <laughs> is it, is it not? Where are you from, Andy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Derbyshire, initially. I've lived... If you've got a particular drug, is it not possible to collect data on if you've had several trials against it? At what point... Would you say that we've had so many trials against this drug with another newly invented drug which haven't worked? At what point do you say that no more inventors' drugs are going to beat this particular drug? How do you collect data on the success rate of beating a particular drug to improve against it? And if no drug can actually beat a drug, is it ethical even testing against the drug that you have, considering nothing is beating the drug that you already have? So I guess your question really is about um, what do you do if somebody comes up with a treatment and they want to do a randomised trial to see if it works or not, but you can't convince yourself that there is genuine uncertainty about whether their new treatment is better than what we already have, it just, because it just seems very unlikely. And that's something that happens all the time. And I mean, you know, the answer is we try and manage it proportionately by doing teeny tiny trials initially, and when it looks like the stuff's no good, then we stop trialling it. There's, there's no perfect way of doing it, but um, the number of people who are killed by inappropriate use of existing drugs, by unhelpful use of second, third, fourth and fifth best drug in class, is still phenomenal. And the degree of respect for evidence is also still incredibly low. So the problem that you're describing is managed in a kind of human way of, shall we do this trial? And everybody in the ethics committee goes, no, because your new drug is clearly shit. Um, <laughs> But equally, you know, it's, um, it's important to remember that when we're trying to be really perfectionist about how we run trials and consequently don't do trials, we have to remember that meanwhile, out in the badlands of medicine, in the real world, evidence is being routinely ignored and under-treatment and inappropriate management is, is rife. Like azetimib or ezetinibay or whatever, however you want to say it, depending on what country you're in, big new swanky cholesterol drug, um, it's, uh, it's really expensive. There's a big trial on it. And the company didn't want to share the results of the trial. So we run this alltrials.net campaign just to stop people hiding data. It's really, really important. And um, so there's this big fight. 
saying, on, give, give us the results of this trial on, on azetamibe. And the FDA end up writing to the drug company and they say, you've got to share the results of this trial on azetamibe. And then they share the results, but they switch the primary outcome. That's chapter five of Bad Pharma, Bad Trials, right, really dodgy. Um, so they switch the primary outcome and it's all, and then we finally get the real data and we can see that azetamibe is not very good. And finally, we've got the answer, right? So we found out azetamibe is not really much cop. It doesn't kill people, it's just not much better than what we've already got. And it's really expensive. So, this, this landmark research is published, right? Now, if you look at the prescription rates of azetamibe, it's really interesting, because they come along, they plotter along, it's being used a fair amount. And then this big landmark research is published saying that it's basically no good. And the prescription rate goes completely the same, and no one cares, nobody acts on it, doesn't do anything. So it's an interesting and important question, but I think we shouldn't get too preoccupied with being really perfectionist about how we manage like, trials and making sure that nobody ever gets an inappropriately uh, under-effective treatment in a trial. We should try and manage that, but we should also remember that meanwhile, in the real world of medicine, that happens absolutely all the time. So let's stop being preoccupied with what happens in randomised trials and making them the exception and saying everything has to be perfect in randomised trials, when in medicine it's a mess. Wasn't it um, Bradford Hill who initially said, why is it unethical for me to give half my patients this new drug, but not unethical for, to give all of my patients the new drug? You only have to get the ethics approval if you're randomising. Well, that's absolutely true. Someone just here is asking a question. Yeah. And you don't have to say your name if it bothers you, but if you'd like to tell us. I've been told that I should patent my name. It's Max Lab. Um, how, if I'm a, a GP and the patient comes to me with pain in the chest going down his left arm and he's going to have a heart attack and I give him spider venom. Give him what? Spider venom. Oh, right, okay, good luck. Spider and he, venom. And he gets better. So how would you educate me as a, as a doctor in the street? I'm just going to have to be honest and say I don't understand the question, I'm afraid. But if you want to email it another time, um, we'll... Uh, how, how, do you, how, how does your philosophy impact me in a practice? How so, as, as some random guy with some spider venom, you're not operating within an information architecture in which it is easy to run routine randomised trials. On the other hand, your intervention is quite improbable, it's fairly unlikely to work. Um, so I'd be anxious about you doing it in the first place. But, no, seriously, though. Um, uh, and somebody who's going, oh, I've got central crushing chest pain, it's radiating down my left arm, what's going to happen next isn't sufficiently clearly, definitely fatal that you'd be able to say, if that person survives, then your idea was really great because lots and lots of people have central crushing chest pain radiating down their left arm and they're fine. In fact, about, probably about 40% of the people in this room in Conway Hall on any given evening. <laughs> <laughs> As a lady uh, with uh, her hand in the air, just here. Um, my name is Fiona. I was disappointed that going back to statins, you didn't describe the side effects that so many people complain about. They, their GP gives them the pills and they go home and put them down the loo because they can't cope with the side effects. So that was uh, slides 7 to 13. 
which I skipped over. And it's a really, really interesting and important question. So, um, I probably, can you get those slides up? Yeah, there they go. Is someone's there a, uh, someone's uh, flashed them up again. So, um, I was involved in a paper that looked at all of the um, side effects data from all the randomized trials that have been done on statins, right? And it uh, resulted in a bit of, oh no, bugger, it's not there. Oh well, sorry. Um, <laughs> so, side effects. Really interesting and challenging to measure, okay? Firstly, because um, side effects generally aren't hugely common, right? Even aching limbs. Um, side effects aren't hugely common, so you need large numbers to be able to detect the difference between two groups. Particular challenges around the statin side effects that people report that are often things like uh, impaired exercise tolerance and uh, aching muscles, because don't we all sometimes feel like we've got impaired exercise tolerance today, <laughs> you know, as we bound up the stairs and the tube or whatever? And aching muscles are exactly the same. Now, really interestingly, when you look at the side effects data from randomized trials on statins, what you've got is you've got large numbers of people on statins, large numbers of people on placebo, and you can see that people report, for example, aching muscles, at exactly the same rate, whether they're on a statin or on a placebo, a dummy placebo sugar pill. Now, I don't buy that, right? And when you go, oh, well, whatever, yeah, I'm with you, right? Not because I think that statins definitely have side effects, but because I think that's not good enough evidence for a treatment that you're giving, giving to 100 million people around the world. What you want is a prospective randomized trial set up specifically to look at whether statin or placebo has the worst side effects. Now, why do you need to do a new trial? Well, firstly, um, although the rates of people reporting side effects are pretty much the same on statins or on placebo, the absolute rate at which people report aching muscles varies by a factor of about four between different trials. So the way that they are ascertaining that is clearly quite wonkaloid between different trials. That's a technical term. Um, Secondly, our study looked only at published papers on trials. Now, first of all, whole trials can be routinely withheld from the research literature, but also, more importantly, I think, in this field, um, and there was a paper published on this just last week from the Orbit pro Project, the Outcome Reporting Bias in Trials Project, which looked specifically at uh, side effect reporting in trials, and they found that side effects are reported even more selectively and haphazardly in published academic journal articles about trials than data on benefits. So we know that side effect data is reported really badly in uh, the academic papers for randomized trials. So better to try and get it from the clinical study reports, but better than that even is to do a proper randomized trial set up to answer this question. So... Um, that's what, like, we've got a grant application in right now to do this. Um, and I think it's quite an interesting project as well, because it's, uh, it's basically the first... So you're going to take statins for 10 years, 20, hopefully 40. And what we're proposing to do is for the first six months of that, you won't actually be taking a statin. You'll be randomised on and off for each month or each two-month period to have either a statin or a placebo. Now... That, I think, is ethically okay, because we're only going to be depriving you of a very short 
period of time when you're going to be on statins, and we're assuming that statins do good, and we know that statins do good, so it'd be wrong to deprive you of a statin for too long just to look at side effects, but actually, like a few months, which is neither here nor there. And then, we can't get side effect data from routinely collected electronic health records, that's not good enough, but we're just going to set up a quick website where you go along and you just type in your, um, you just tell us what your side effects are. Now, the thing that has massively ramped up the cost of this trial is the fact that we have to give GPs a couple hundred quid for every patient because we have to pay them to have a 20-minute long chat with their patients about the hazards of being in our trial. Now, to be clear, this is even more perverse than the situation that I described earlier because in our trial, it's not just that you're in a trial and you're going to be randomised to one statin treatment regime or another and there's no grounds to believe that one is any better than the other. Actually, our trial is looking at side effects. We know that being deprived of statins for this period of time isn't going to inflict any harm. So the only difference, the only thing that I'm adding by doing this trial, right, the only thing that we're adding by doing this trial, is that for a couple of months, you won't get a statin. But because I'm doing that to you, it has to be a 20-minute long conversation about the hazards of being in our trial. And again, that's completely loopy and drives the cost up to the point where NIHR say, well, that's a nice idea and everything but it's too expensive. Now, too expensive is, like, this is a couple of million quid. I think it should be, like, it should be possible to do this for peanuts, right? But the reason why it's expensive, one of the biggest chunks of cost is the stupid stuff around consent, quite inappropriately. And crucially, I think, if I just, you know, oh, I don't know, maybe I fucking hate telly, but maybe I should just, like, if I did some telly, right, and it, I'd literally rather slam my cock in the door than make television programmes... <laughs> Um, I reckon, like, if I, if, I, if I did, like, a documentary and I said, look, we want to do this trial, blah, 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 statins, randomization, whatever, and we want to do a trial to find out, like, everybody, this is what everybody cares about with statins. This fucking, the newspapers are being stuffed full of it. And what are the side effects of statins? Nobody knows. Everybody cares, right? And if I said, I've got this trial and it's open to anyone who wants to be in it and it's just to see if statins cause side effects or not, I think people would be kicking my door in to be in that trial, right? So that's, that's the state that we're in. So you're absolutely right. What about the side effects? Well, the answer is we need to do a proper trial, and we can't do the proper trial because we're prevented from doing that by idiots who don't reflect your wishes but pretend that they do. Right, lots of hands in the air. Wait there. I just want to find out if anyone sits on an ethics committee. <laughs> Put your hands down. Do you feel like responding on behalf of ethics committees in general? You don't have to. Someone's giving you a microphone. Just, just. The ethics committee that I'm on, we don't do drug trials, so um, I'm not responsible for any of this. Oh, okay. <laughs> but also, okay. you know, it's, it's not individuals, it's frameworks, and that's always the reality, yeah. you know, it's not. I would say, Ben, that if you're recruiting your participants by going on the telly, they're not NHS patients, they're free-living citizens, so you wouldn't need NHS ethics. You'd need some other kind of ethics, like university ethics, but that's another matter. Well, no, because we'd want to be randomising them at point of care, really, in well, through GP practice. Well, I think you, we'd may, want you may want to change the way you do that and say, well, look, hand, you can buy most statins over the counter. No, because then yeah. I'd have to employ doctors who see them and who go, yes, you need a statin, or no, you don't need yeah. a statin, in order, and they'd Difficult. have to have access, and that... Again, yeah. so Difficult. I think it has to be, for any of this to work, it has to be embedded in routine <clears throat> clinical care. But it's like, it's a module in, yeah. in EMIS, right? It's now, who's had the, there's a gentleman at the back side, his hand up ages. I think we ought to give him a go. 
He says hand up since right. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Evan Parker. I'm a trustee of this uh, ethical society. Right. Uh, and I went to my doctor and I said, I'm very interested in living as long as possible, as you are, Ben. And so he said, well, you should go on statins. And he looked at, looked, although my cholesterol is low, he looked at a table and said, yes, if you go on 10 milligrams of statins for the rest of your life, your chance of reading 90 is increased by 25%. And so uh, that's the real test. I don't give a damn whether I have aching muscles or not, as long as I live for a long time, a bit like yourself. But, but, the, but not everyone is the same. It's no. the crucial thing. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Are you aware of the very large trial that took place in Canada where they're looking at what actually enabled people to live for a very, very long time, up to 90? Uh, it, was a, it was about, I think, millions of people. And the thing that stood out, uh, apparently, and they're very surprised at the result, the things that stood out, if you really want to live for a long time, is drink red wine and eat dark chocolate. Were you aware of that, um, of that big trial? So what I'm assuming is it's the, um, it's the confounder molecules in the chocolate that the, the confounding variable molecules, they, they enter your bloodstream and they go to your liver <laughs> and then they make your liver regenerate tissue. And if you want to understand that joke, by the way, <laughs> that's chapter seven on epidemiology. Okay, I'm determined to get us out by nine o'clock. There's one more. I'm trying to be gender neutral here, and I think we've only had one woman. Is there any other women who want to write, answer a question, ask a question? Just put your hands up if you. Come on, then, lady in red hat. There's a microphone. Sorry, you think? Um, sorry, I'd like to ask how often you think um, financial interests distort these beautiful statistics you present? Uh, well, the answer to that question is about 447 pages long, and it's bad pharma. And I it could start talking it now, and we would finish by about 3 o'clock on uh, Sunday afternoon. Um, OK. I, I know lots and lots of you got your hands up, but I think Ben's made a pretty good job of promoting his current book, his previous book, and my book, <laughs> as well as promoting Ask Beam Therapy for preparing for a talk. So I think the idea is that you now go out and queue up, and he's going to sign a lot of his books. I'm sorry that you haven't all had a chance to ask your question, but I know some people need to, to get back to family. So thank you very much. I think he deserves a round of applause.